Hello and welcome to episode 194 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop gaming. My name is Ronan and I have no Sean, but equally I'm not solo because dragged from the depths of Game Pit history, a once-time occasional guest, a recently no guest, back to hopefully possibly could be a regular guest depending on how he behaves himself, very welcome Lloyd. Listen to you trying to generate enthusiasm for yourself, never mind for everybody else, at the prospect about what's about to happen. I am going to make you be less than 100% miserable at some games, hopefully. Let's see if you achieve that. <laughs> uh, it's, I have done an early shift already today, so energy levels are not quite where they might need to be to combat your misery. I'm fairly confident there's going to be less singing in this episode than there was in the last. <laughs> but more ragger chatting. I'm going to Google that and confirm later. Very good. Okay, we are going to run through, I have to count quickly now, nine games that Lloyd and I have been playing together recently. Some new, mostly old, and we're going to kick straight into it with... Lloyd, have you ever had that thing where you don't encounter something and then you encounter it once and then you encounter it everywhere? Uh, Like nice people to play games with? No, it's never come up. Yeah, okay, good start. Ahoy! <laughs> Let's just move on. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'm going to ignore the gobshitery. Uh, leader games. So, this is an asymmetric game. And we're talking about following along in the path of Vast and very, very following along in the path of Root. And Ahoy is a piratical-themed game for two to four players with three factions in it, though, and apparently it works best with three, and I can well believe it, I haven't played it. And it's all anthropomorphic animals in which there are a bunch of sharks trying to take over islands, there's a bunch of, don't know, the, the other people who live on the islands trying to keep the islands, and then there is a scoundrel going around the place trying to sell and buy cards. And it's very much inspired by Root. It's very much got the feel of Root. It's got a similar artwork to Root. But it is all very simplified down where you play over a course of rounds and you're sailing round a modular board, which is tiles come out and they're going to show islands with different symbols. And it's all a very simplified rule set, Lloyd. Everyone in the whole world, almost, loves the idea of having these asymmetric games in which there are different factions, in which everyone wins in a slightly different way, but you're playing in a shared space. But the huge, massive problem with them is they're incredibly difficult to teach and learn and get to the point where everyone knows how the factions. So I'm going to go back to the beginning. Did you ever play Vast? If I did, it made such an impression I don't recall it, but I definitely did play Root. Okay, Vast I learned probably four times and probably never had the balls to actually bring it to the game group and the patience to teach it to everyone <laughs> and be sitting there just teaching all the way through because people will forget. I think, as people will discover throughout the course of this episode, sometimes your lack of patience to teach people is based on the people you're having to teach games to. So I can kind of get that. That was almost the, you being nice. The number one offender. <laughs> no, no, you're not. No, incredible as that might seem. <laughs> <laughs> um, Root, I cut you off. What's your history with Root? Root is an interesting place to start, right? and it is kind of the obvious place to start when talking about Ahoy. And if it was the only game you or your group owned, it could be absolutely incredible. If you're willing to commit the time to it and everyone play at least one game as every faction to get a feel for it, that next game is probably incredible. But my experience of playing it when there are you know hundreds of games in everyone's collection, it just isn't the time or inclination to spend that kind of time. You play a learning game of it as one of the factions. You have an idea of what you're doing, but 
everyone else might be doing might as well be doing whatever they want like i have no idea how the cat faction operates having seen it two or three times like that person could have just been playing well was playing their own game but could have been doing entirely made up things and i would have no way of knowing having spent probably five hours playing root which i think is kind of my problem with it right like it's too much of an investment to start getting those returns and i think ahoy does a really good job of addressing that does that sort of match your experience? I think that's a you problem, not a root problem, by the way. <laughs> oh, very possibly. The issue is that I have six or seven hundred games, right? Uh, yeah, that is the problem. And I think that Ahoy definitely sets out to address that problem and does it by simplifying everything. And all the interactions are simplified and all of the rules are simplified. And in terms of presenting a much simplified system in which you can get straight in and see what the other players are doing and understand the whole pattern of what's going on in the whole game. You're not sitting there in the dark going, I really don't know what those birds are doing other than being annoying. It mm. does achieve it on that level, and I enjoyed playing it. I played as the... Now, is Scoundrel the root one? The smuggler, right? Ahoy's the yeah. smuggler? Yeah. So I played as the smuggler, and I didn't feel like I was interacting very much with the other players. I think that's true. I think to sort of explain about how it works, you have two factions that are playing an area control game broadly, and then a third faction that is doing its own thing that, if left to its own devices, will probably win. But you need to let them do some smuggling because that increases the value of the areas that the area control game is worth. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you have to kind of allow the smuggler to do some smuggling to make the places valuable, but not too much smuggling that they run away with it. And that was sort of key to what I felt at the end of the game. While I was making a charge on points, it's also a weird sort of gambling thing for the smuggler, whereby when they smuggle a card, they have to put it under one of two things to guess which of the other two factions are going to end up in charge of the island, which is a very odd mechanism, but can reap you loads of points. But towards like the last third of the game, though, if I'm the smuggler and I'm coming into an area where you have got your, your big boats and you're obviously intending to be winning it by the end of the game, so I'm there and I'm an obvious target, actually all I'm doing is giving you points. So why would you hit me? It's a really taut balance between those three factions, right? In that the area control thing makes perfect sense. And I think you sort of alluded to this maybe unintentionally is that the smuggler faction is the only one that has a, an unknown or variable amount of points because everyone else's points are on the board and visible and trackable and calculable, whereas for the smuggler there is that unknown information. So you maybe want to interact with the smuggler because they have the potential to jump ahead of you as the area control factions. And I think that's kind of what forces the interaction from the other players. Like, I have the same concern. I think it's as the smuggler, it's very easy to just play your own game and not interact with the other players at all. And I think if you do that, you probably will win more than a third of the games. But I think the game is quite sort of subtle in explaining that to the other players. Like, I think almost during the rules explanation, you need to explain to the two area control factions, which are the mollusks and the sharks, because clearly I was invested in the theme. Oh, we'll, we'll come back to that sort of nonsense. Don't worry about that. <laughs> sure. Theme's going to come up okay. a lot. <laughs> but yeah, I think either the game or the, the person teaching it needs to be a bit more explicit about saying, you know, the smuggler, you have to keep them in check uh, because otherwise they will just run away with it. Even though it's mutually beneficial, it's more beneficial to the smuggler than it is to the other players. But let's say we're playing as the, as the sharks and the mollusks, right? And I, as the shark, keep the smuggler in check. So every time he comes near one of my islands or I'll send out patrols after him in the area, wherever it might be, and you don't, you'll win the game. 
it's sort of a shared workload, right? Is that you can't be the only person that's keeping the smuggler in check. The other person has to do it as well. And you have to sort of cooperate on that whilst competing for everything else. <laughs> and so you want to be the person that does, you know, 45% of that keeping the smuggler in check. Which is exactly where you live in that I've done 45% of the work on this, but I'm going to get 50% of the benefit. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it absolutely is. It's how I live my life. <laughs> no, you don't. It's more like 20%. <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to say that, but yeah. Um, so, you know, I think to kind of leap ahead a little bit, I think it's really interesting. I think it's one of the more successful games with sort of that really heavy asymmetry. I think it is... Not perfect. I think it's easy for the smugglers to play their own solo game and not interact at all. And I think it's easy for the game to run away in any one of the three directions, depending on on how the game is either played out. But I think it's quick enough that a lot of those concerns I sort of don't mind. Like, if this was going to take me three hours, then I'd have real issues with it. But the fact that, I mean, it felt like it played in about 40 minutes. Does that feel about right? I'd say a wee bit longer. I'd say up to about an hour. But yeah, you know, you're knocking around. Yeah, so it's not long enough that it really outstays its welcome. I felt like it did everything. It worked quite well. It was quite interesting. It's worth more plays to explore how the other factions work. I genuinely, honestly, also having played as a smuggler, don't really understand what the other factions do, but it didn't really matter. (laughs) And actually, as the smuggler, I chose to interact with the other factions a bit more than you did, I think, because in your game, like you said, you were sort of left alone and it sort of benefited you to be left alone. It benefited them to let you keep increasing the value of places. For me, I think on my first turn, I got attacked by the sharks and they like crippled my boat. So later on, when I had the opportunity to get revenge, I did. I loaded up my cannons, sailed into them and blew their ship to pieces. And then they spent like a turn or two having to repair their ship to even, not even get revenge, but even be relevant in the game again. So that bought me extra time to be left alone. And I think, again, like those are things the players can choose how much they want to interact with each other or whether they want to try and play a kind of elusive game. And the board sort of enables that. Like Players create the board as you go. So you sail off the edge of the board to place a new tile, which is placing new islands and things, and is how the game sort of develops and the map develops. But you have tailwinds, right? So you can jump from any tile to a tile with a matching number, but without really going into the details, right? The board is flexible enough that you can traverse it easily and quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not locked down spatially, and you can take cards as crew as well, and any of the factions can do it. And you can really start to bend sort of space, if you like, and be able to break even the few movement rules there are. So yeah, I definitely think it's interesting. It sounds like I liked it slightly more than you did. I liked it fine, actually. I, I and that that actually sounded really mean. I it really <laughs> I enjoyed my play of it. I think it's a good game. I think it achieves what it sets out to achieve as a gateway drug towards root and the like. I can't see myself playing it that often because I didn't no, yeah. feel like there was depth there. I felt like, yeah, this is fun, this is enjoyable, it's an hour long, bit of interaction, it's a bit different. I'd like to see the different factions and then I might be done with it. I, I've played it and it was right, I was teetering on ordering it. It's less than 30 quid. So it's great value, but I don't need it. No, and I feel the same way. I think it probably has five to 15 plays in it and the number is probably closer to five than it is to 15. Six, then. And I will have seen everything the game does, and I won't need to do it again. But I think I'll enjoy all of those five plays. We're going to move on. The next one is one that you taught me, and it is by the world's greatest ever board game designer. I'm curious which way this is going to go. <laughs> Ronan, no. San Francisco. <laughs> I thought you had a running order. Perhaps you don't. I will keep that in mind from now on. <laughs> There's a difference between having a running order and having read a running order. 
Didn't okay. I thought you'd read the right. Okay, San Francisco. <laughs> See you in two years. <laughs> Go tell us all about it. Oh god. Okay, San Francisco. San Francisco is a new game of Knizia. It is often described as a bit like Coloretto the board game, and I think that is not inaccurate, but also slightly unfair. You are trying to develop a grid that you have of San Francisco or a district of San Francisco. Um, it's a Knizia, so the theme is not. Strong, I think it's better to say. You're trying to develop your district with a variety of commercial, residential, harbour-based buildings, some gardens maybe, and train tracks. <laughs> and there's a couple of ways of scoring points, but points are very tight. So you score points for being the first to complete one of your rows in your district. You score points for having uh, the highest populations in your district. And you score points for having the best tram network in your district. And in total, I would say there are something like 25 points in the entire game. So in a four-player game, a winning score of you know 10 or 11 is realistic. It's a tight game in terms of score. I think that might be the most interesting thing about it. What have I missed? The drafting mechanism with the contracts and that, I think, is maybe... How the game actually works. Yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> the coloretto uh, element. Uh, you can tell I wasn't prepared to be talking about explaining how this game works, right? I noticed that when you taught um, me, so... <laughs> Thanks. So on your turn, you are either drawing a card and adding it to the stack or taking a stack of cards. And when you take a stack of cards, you're then placing them immediately into your district and taking a contract at the same time. And the twist is you cannot take uh, a stack of cards if it has more cards in it than you have contracts already. So that as you acquire contracts, you can't take stacks until they become bigger and bigger, at which point other people will presumably take them before you as they become more valuable. Once all players gain a contract at least, everyone discards one, and so that number then drops down again. So you can only get rid of contracts, by and large, by other people taking them as well. So it's on your turn, very quick micro-turns, either draw and add a card to a stack or take a stack and place it into your district. The whole game is, again, easily under an hour, probably 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, lots of micro-decisions. Brennan, what did you think of San Francisco? I thought the drafting was the best part of it. And uh, I thought something that was going to be very simple, where you just just take as many as you can, because it's going to be difficult to get cards. Actually, you can really bind yourself up and have too many contracts. And then the whole table can be in the hold of one or two people, because they've taken fewer. Until they start taking things, You like they can make it so that no stack is valid for you for a while. So... I think the fact that you have to be careful about what you're drafting every single time you draft is very cleverly done. It means that you have to be aware of what's available in the game and how points are scored. Because you already mentioned that point scoring is so tight that you have to maximise every opportunity. Otherwise, you'll find yourself completely out of it. And I went in just playing the stereotype of me to have the greatest tram network and do, do the public transport <laughs> thing and ended up with the fewest and getting punished for it because I injudiciously drafted at the beginning. And it's something you almost have to experience to understand the whole rhythm of the game. I think the thing I experienced was your inability to run a successful network, which is revealing. But no, it's, not, it's certainly not a deep game, but it's definitely not as simple as it first seems. The major barrier for me, for my enjoyment, is the absolute dead, soulless presentation and theme that I just was not invested in what I was doing at all. Mechanically, I was interested, but in terms of what I was doing, what the cards actually meant, what anything was, I was a bit like... Mm. 
Absolutely, and I agree with you. And I think that comes across when I was trying to then explain the game because you're like, well, what are we building? We're building like a bit of San Francisco, which I only know because the game is called San Francisco. Like I'm just putting cards into a grid. <laughs> I'm not really, I'm not invested in this neighborhood I built. It doesn't have a personality or a theme. Everyone is building them along the same sort of rules and, and guidelines. So I completely agree with you. Like it's not a game where you're going to be telling a story of building a city. Absolutely not. What it is is a game of you're going to make probably 60 or so decisions, all of which will be incredibly quick in a short amount of time. And those decisions are interesting and meaningful. And it's whether that alone is enough to kind of sustain the game. And for me, I think it is. But it sounds like for you, it probably isn't. Well, each decision within itself was meaningful, but didn't feel meaningful because the meaning was given to it by what subsequently happened in a lot of cases. Every decision opened up potential. Whether that potential was fulfilled, I wasn't always fully in control of. Now, part of that is because I got locked out of the drafting. I'd given up control of my own game, if you like, by drafting too early. Mm. And I'd actually love to see how the rhythm of the drafting works when people understand it more because you wouldn't be going in grabbing one card at a time or two cards at a time because you'd be like I don't know if these can be any use to me I have to establish something before anything's worth my time going in and get it so I would like to go back to it but it has certain barriers where I feel like it's just a bit too cold yeah I think they've done a really good job of making the game visually clear you can see at a glance where everything goes what row it's for how many points it's going to be worth or at least how many people it has on it but what it does lack is, yeah, a little bit of personality, perhaps. Wow, we can't hold that against anyone. Lloyd, <laughs> there's a game that we keep mentioning over the last few episodes, but you wanted to have your say on the oft-mentioned Miss Over Carcassonne. You you, you yes. like Carcassonne. You've played a lot of Carcassonne. I do like Carcassonne. It's one of, I mean, my first games that I played, I think it's true for almost everybody. I have played a lot of Carcassonne over the years. Sort of drifting out of rotation, but consistently delivers quite a solid gaming experience. And so Mr. Carcassonne, which I imagine everyone here is at this point sick of hearing about, so we'll keep it fairly brief. Very brief. Um, <laughs> new cooperative version. I think it does an interesting job of mixing up the kind of classic cooperative game system where it's not the players take a turn, the game takes a turn, and now the player's next turn is to try and fix that again. Everything is just on players' turns, and as you're flipping and placing tiles, that is triggering bad effects that the players have to manage. I think it is a really interesting tweak and change on cooperative games and is well worth a look. Even if you are a little bit played out with Carcassonne or you've moved on from it, I definitely think it's worth another look. It doesn't fix or address the kind of quarterbacking alpha gamer problem that some uh, some co-ops have. But as you said, that is a player problem, not a game problem. And yeah, I, I, I mentioned that with Sean quickly, so I'll just say it again that I thought that there were usually a few good options for each tile and that people were able to come out with a reason and say, yeah, but I'd rather put it there because of this. So I didn't think the quarterbacking was as bad. Or was I wrong? No, we, have, we absolutely ended up a bit in discussion about it. But as always, if you have one personality that is a little bit more dominant or feels a bit more confident in their abilities, then they can sort of dominate every one of those discussions. It's nice for that to be mentioned in a game that I did not play in. So I, you know, <laughs> hands in the air here. It's a, it's a vote up from me. It's a vote up from you, and it's a very mediocre, lukewarm vote from Sean. So, which suggests it's probably very good. <laughs> we'll move on. We, <laughs> I mean, campaign games. We've got a strong record of starting them and finishing them and playing them all the way through. So it's nice to know that we're definitely going to finish the latest one that we began. 
<laughs> a Kickstarter that arrived. It's a blend of three games. It stars off Akarios. And prior to opening the box, all I heard about it was it was a mix of Gloomhaven, X-Wing, and Seventh Continent. Between us, we've played those games a fair amount. So this is one of the reasons why I contacted you and said, I think this might be in your wheelhouse. It is a, a kind of a one-person show. It is a slightly rough around the edges. You can tell that as soon as you get it out, you start putting it together and the game trays has a game tray guide, but it doesn't actually show you all the components. So if you were to pack it with the game trays, you'd have a load of components left outside the box. And things like that, which are first-time Kickstarter mistakes, which you can I can anyway forgive. What we're going to talk about is that you and I have played through the first three missions of Stars of Akarios, and it sets us up as starfighter pilots, and we're going out on a train exercise, and then something goes wrong, and we end up having to go into live action. And in effect, there are various, there's like a seventh continent exploration part of the game we haven't got to, we can't comment on, but we have played the blend of X-Wing and Gloomhaven that people are talking about in that there is a map, you do movements, you do shots. It doesn't work exactly the same as X-Wing and Lloyd is an X-Wing absolute expert so he'll be able to give you a much more informed comparison there. And then in terms of Gloomhaven, it's because you're fighting against different AI and different aliens. Obviously we've only done the beginning ones and they have a deck of cards and that runs what they're going to do. So in our missions, we've had to protect something, we've had to escort something, we've had to fight some fighters. And as initial impressions on Stars of Acarius, Lloyd, how has it struck you? Well, I think actually I probably need to ask you some questions beforehand, but maybe we've not played far enough. So how close does it feel to a game of Gloomhaven to you? Not very. How close does it feel to a game of Seventh Continent to you? Now, admittedly, we've not gone far enough into really experience that. Yeah, no, we haven't really covered that bit. Because my feeling of it for the X-Wing, so the space combat part of it, I can see why it would get comparisons to X-Wing, but it is in no way similar. It sounds as though, or it feels as though it was like somebody having a phone conversation, trying to explain what X-Wing is to somebody else who's never played games before, and the line is a bit crackly, and they miss a lot of the words. <laughs> <laughs> so it is space combat. It broadly functions as space combat, but it has, from what I've seen from three missions, absolutely none of the strategic or tactical depth of X-Wing. So we played three missions, right? One is, uh, I mean, how spoilerific do we want to be? Not very, right? No. One was a free-for-all fight. One was protect a thing in the centre of the board. And one was protect a thing that is moving across the board. And in all of those missions, the fights basically just resulted in everything clumping together in the middle, just trying to outshoot things. These, start, these fragile, uh, multi-billion pound, delicate pieces of technology fight the way I play rugby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And you had a conversation in one of our missions about, well, I'm going to try and break off here and flank around and get behind them. And I can see the interest in that, but A, the game is, or the space combat is so few turns. I think the game we were playing that, I think it might have been six turns. So we yeah, didn't really have time them, yeah. to be out of the fight for a round or two while we were positioning. And then it seems like all of the ships have the ability to turn around pretty easily. So even if you do do something like that, you know, take two turns off to get a positional advantage the game or the AI just fixes that the next turn and then you're still just in the same kind of like face-to-face combat that you were trying to avoid. A lot of the enemy AI feels like they want the moves to be more expansive and they want them to be swooping across the map more. But then when they actually start playing it, they realise, but that makes it really, really hard to guess where they're going to be and shoot them. Yes. 
And then it felt like they've yeah. gone, oh, this is a four-hour game and we've got to make it. Well, the quick, easiest way to make this a quick game is to just shorten all these movements and everyone will be closer to each other and you'll be able to get more incidental shots in. And you go, yeah, that's great. It just turns it into a big scrum. Now, yeah, we are playing the basic AIs and we are playing the basic baddies and we've got our basic ships. It still doesn't feel great to be forced to literally park, like Lloyd has a slightly fightier setup for, for his ship. Mine is supposed to be sort of a research and support ship, which maybe doesn't work as well two-player. Maybe I'm, I should have more companions. But to, to have my ship that I've kitted out for that sort of a thing and the powers I've chosen to do that sort of thing, to have to sit next to something just to absorb some of the fire, mm, <laughs> I wasn't feeling that very much. I think, as you said earlier, I've played a lot of X-Wing to the extent that um, we had a YouTube channel breaking down X-Wing games and talking about strategy in it and the positional relevance of things you could do to play smart X-Wing. And from three games of this, I can't see any of that depth in the Space Combat in Stars Macarius. Now, it might well appear, and it might be as we upgrade our ships and our pilots, we gain additional abilities and can do more of those types of things. But the way the Space Combat works is you have four action dice that you roll and then you assign them, and you are limited to how many times you can assign dice to specific actions. It doesn't feel like you're going to, for example, be able to move your ship enough to make spatial positioning relevant. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I I think what we're going to need to hope for for this is that the Space Combat improves a little bit, but at least it stays quick that the exploration ends up being interesting and that the story kicks up and we start actually caring about yes. where we go and we've got real choices that we can make. So it's a case of you've discovered this, but that's there, or you can go do this. Is there some diplomacy? Is there some negotiation? Is there betrayal that we've had a whiff off? If those things kick in and then the space combat, like I say, gets a little bit better but stays the same length, then actually I'll, I'll be okay. If it, the space yeah. combat doesn't, if it stays this bad, then I won't be playing 50 games of this. Oh, absolutely. When you were saying earlier, I was like, I'm confident that we'll finish this. I don't know that we'll finish the campaign. Well, I think maybe Pandemic Legacy is about the only campaign we've ever <laughs> <laughs> But to go back to your thing about enemy ships, right? we've both been playing a bit of Gloomhaven at various times. And within a game or two of Gloomhaven, you can identify enemies and sort of get a feel for the way they're going to play, the speed they're going to operate, what type of attacks they're going to do, how they're going to move. And having seen, admittedly again, only a couple of enemy ships in Stars Vicarios. They didn't feel like they had very distinct personalities. One was a bit more nimble than the other, but that was really about it. That, I think, though, is that Gloomhaven, and I agree with you that in terms of design, they're nowhere near as clever as Gloomhaven ones to this point. But also Gloomhaven is leaning heavily upon the fact that that is a shared language. And if I see a big earth elemental, I have an idea how that's going to behave. And if I see a fire elemental that can fly, I have an idea that that's going to be a sort of a support thing whizzing around the place. So it, it leans on things that we know culturally. When you go and do sci-fi, the tropes are almost less forgiven in sci-fi and you're forced to be more imaginative and I'm hoping some of that imagination comes out. But it will yeah, still absolutely. be harder to remember and guess the AI. It should be, because in sci-fi you're talking about complete aliens. And while, I mean, it, it, <laughs> clearly an ogre is an alien species to us, it, it's been linked to human behaviour so much that we, we expect it to be brutish and slow and, and powerful, whatever. Whereas if you did that with, with aliens, then people would be like, oh, it's a bit mm, not very good, not very imaginative. The bar is set higher 
for this AI and it's not reaching there. But I also don't want to be too mean on it and down on it. It was fine. We had a nice afternoon playing it. I want to play it again. I want to see what else there is. It just needs to step up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's every chance this will develop and we'll come back to this knowing us in three years' time and be like, oh my God, it's incredible. There's also every chance that we'll play a hammer four more times but like, there's just nothing coming from this. Mm. I think it's more likely to be the latter, but I'm excited to find out whether it's not. And I am too. It's a journey we can go on together. You're, <laughs> you're a master of segues, by the way. How much physical Gloomhaven have you played on the tabletop? So I started a campaign with our mutual friend, Puria, and we played a lot of it over a short space of time, by which I mean probably 10 or 15 games of it. And that went so well, he dissolved that party and set up a different group instead. <laughs> so I haven't played it for a couple of years and now I've played three or four more games of Gloomhaven in person in the last sort of six months or so. And then what we're going to be talking about is that you, I, and the aforementioned Puria have been playing Gloomhaven online. Which feels like it might be the best way of doing it. It feels like it might be. And I usually I love the tactile thing and the being with someone and the crack and the laugh and the... Now, we, we've got some of that. It's never quite the same as being in person with people and seeing them, but we all know each other very well. We're playing games for over 10 years together. The abuse flows in no matter what medium we are gaming in. <laughs> and in all directions. Uh, mostly at him. But yeah, yeah, all directions. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> what I am interested in is because we've, we've brushed on theme several times over the course so far of the conversation. I'm never quite sure where you stand on theme, and I'm not sure where you stand on theme and mechanisms with Gloomhaven, with what attracts you to them either way. Is, is it that you're really enjoying the crafting of a deck, the using of the deck, the interaction between the three characters we have? You're playing as the Tinkerer, I'm the Spellweaver, he's the Inox. Or does the theme make a difference to you? Are you invested in what we're doing and the fact that we're going along a certain path of elemental missions or crypt missions? Do you care? I definitely care less than you do about the theme. I think that that is true to almost everything. What I want in the game, and what I've always said I want in the game, is I want a density of interesting decisions. And if a game is an hour, there needs to be enough decisions to justify that hour. If the game is four hours, there needs to be enough decisions to justify that four hours. The theme... Sometimes will help carry something. It will sometimes help explain something, as we sort of talked about with the AI for Gloomhaven. But it can't justify away a poor design or a lack of decisions or a lack of control, if that's what you're after. Having a theme that fits and makes sense and explains some, something is a nice bonus, but it's far from essential. <laughs> and I think the amount I engage with the theme in Gloomhaven is limited suggesting that you think that there are enough interesting decisions enough density of interesting decisions to make it worth your time yes i think there are and I'm, I'm surprised by that i mean nobody listening is surprised to discover the clue maven it turns out it's quite a good game but <laughs> i'm surprised that i get on with it as well as i did and in fact almost everyone i know gets on with it as well for a variety of reasons i think it is just perhaps slightly by luck just a very solid game that fundamentally works. I don't think he does anything by luck. I think okay. you find that's a very unique brain that spent a long time working some stuff out and <laughs> stopped it being feeling mechanical, although it absolutely is. There's absolutely underlying yeah. maths to everything he's done there, but he's done the game design genius. If you're going to design by maths, often that comes through. 
in this. Yeah, of course it does, because you're talking about numbers and how much pierce to do, and if we wound and it's a certain number of rounds, and you're constantly doing these small calculations, but you don't feel like you're fighting against a spreadsheet, which you do against a lot of AIs. Oh yeah, this is designed to do one and a third damage every round, no matter what cards come out in whatever order. Yeah, absolutely. It can vary greatly, but very rarely does it vary to the point of going, oh, the tipping point of this feels like chaos. And our decisions aren't as important as what the game is deciding is going to happen to us. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's that kind of perfect storm of interesting mechanisms, a difficulty level that feels honestly about right, and a theme that a little bit hard for us. Like some of us don't make it (laughs) of any any of the scenarios. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it should be possible to fail, and it should be not an expected outcome, right? Like where do you want your cooperative games to fall if it's you're going to fail 99% of the time and that one time you succeed is incredible, but you have to go through, I mean, potentially years of failure to get to it. Is that the difficulty level you want? Do you want to just sit together and have a, a fun time and stuff happens and you win at the end, but none of it has really mattered? Like typically, I would say probably it's somewhere in between. Now, it does vary game to game, but I think the, the difficulty level for Gloomhaven is actually just about perfectly pitched. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for me it is. I, I didn't need the challenge. If it was too easy, I mean, even it could be a little bit harder, I wouldn't mind too much, but obviously you get to a frustrate, frustration point. If it was any harder, we, we wouldn't be able to carry Puria. <laughs> it seems like the carrying switches depend on who's not in the room at the time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I've played most of my Gloomhaven, Jaws of Lion and this, with Puria, but albeit with, with other people or not. You've played with other people other groups you're, you're playing a digital game with another group as well are you finding that the mix of the characters and the players is making a big difference to the experience not for not you because you hate no. people no <laughs> <laughs> so we have two very different groups in terms of I mean different player numbers different player personalities different characters different approaches to the game as well so the two groups are are very different but because it all holds together so well and fundamentally works. The experience is still quite similar. The main difference, honestly, is that the group with me, you and Puria is much faster. And that makes for a more more enjoyable experience because of the density of decisions. We all know that faster, synonym for better. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so <laughs> a game of Gloomhaven that takes us 90 minutes might take the other group two hours, two hours, 15 and at that point, I start to feel like the density of decisions is just dropping off and it's kind of losing me a little bit, which is the closest that you'll ever get to me saying, I quite like playing games with you guys. It's <laughs> as close as it's going to get. The, the 13 years so far wasn't a subtle enough thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I went into this intending to sort of talk about how what a difference the online play is making because I've said it before. I, I play in person because the socialising and the being with people and the tactile is all part yeah. of it. I, I find even playing on apps cold, apart from Marvel Snap, we probably need to do a separate episode, you and me, on that, from what I've heard. Have you played it? No, I've never played it. Oh, I thought you said you played it the other day. I misheard this. No, okay. no. I've played a lot of Marvel Snap. It's really good. It's free. Play it. Um, <laughs> I was going to talk about that, but actually it's covered because the feeling is very, very similar to playing in person. And, and that, I think, is amazing. They've done great graphics for what it is. The integration is fantastic. The user interface is amazing. And I'm, I guess what I'm saying is it's a fantastic version of it. Lots of people might have discovered it. The thing for me is, as we've mentioned before, during this lockdown, when 
yourself, lots of other people discovered online gaming to a much greater degree. I didn't because I was working. I don't have a cape. You can use the word if you want to. I don't mind. It's okay. But uh, it's almost a revelation to me how close to the tabletop experience this has been. And, uh, you know, it's partly yeah, what I'm playing with, but it's just a fantastic adaptation. And I think a part of that is because it fundamentally works. I think if it was just theme-based and, you know, a little bit of slapdash, I don't think it would hold together. Yeah, and I think just the last point that I said to Ellie the other day, what amazes me is that one fella designed it and you think that it's been played so much and then once you put it on the app, you think this is going to get destroyed. There's going to be exploits found, there's going to be this. It hasn't happened, has it? And that is... Not the best of my yeah. Remarkable to me. Yes. The other thing that you started playing online and in person since the uh, since the lockdowns and everything, and it's another one that makes me interested because I think we're going to follow a similar pattern. We might go over it quickly. I love the theme of Arkham Horror LCG. I also, I mean, I don't love the Cthulhu theme. I, I love the way that theme is used within that to create different challenges and moments and stories and motivations for the players of why you might want to do this, that, or the other. And I think the characters for a board game are quite well realised within what they do in their decks. And then I think you and me are quite similar when we build decks for games. We build along the lines of a little bit of story here and there rather than necessarily maximising, which is why we're not great at games. Um, <laughs> again, I, I, but it comes with that density of decisions. I think we've almost covered it, but you have hit Arkham Horror LCG very hard in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think it has only been probably two years that I've been playing it. And in that time, I've played through basically all of the release content, twice at least, which I would hate to sit down and count how many games it is, but I will do for you. I think it's probably about 90 games of Arkham Horror. You think that each one lasts about three hours. I reckon so that's it's quite a commitment. That is definitely more than 90 games. I'm going to have to tell you that. Almost definitely, yeah. So you're right. And I think we're, we're absolutely again at the bleeding edge here. We just talked about how Gloomhaven is quite good. We mentioned Carcassonne earlier, Knizia, and now we're going to come into Arkham, which is what, 10 years old? So yeah, like. Seven. I'm glad we're doing news here. I'd like There's to say seven, seven but I'm going to double check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's seven years old. <laughs> so I didn't play Arkham OCG for years because I played Arkham Horror and hated it because it's just nonsense. <laughs> it's 100% theme and 0% mechanisms and decisions. And you have a little bit of history with Eld Eldritch Horror, which again, I've not played. But <gasps> I think you play that very, very much as a beer and pretzels game, right? Yeah. And those two or those two games kept me away from this game for years and years and years. It sort of took some badgering of a friend of mine before I actually tried it. And I think within one play, you sort of realise that actually this is entirely unrelated to that other than in theming. And it's just, again, like a really fundamentally interesting and solid game where you are making important and valid decisions the whole way through. Now, what it is is a bit of a lifestyle game, and that makes it difficult again for us because we own too many games. But... The idea of getting a group together and going, okay, next week we're going to play Path the Carcosa campaign. We have an idea of what's coming up in it. Let's all go away and pick a class and build a deck and go through it together. And you can do that however much you want, right? So most of my groups, spoiler alert, we're not great at cooperating. So we'll get as far as these are the classes we're going to play and then we'll all individually build our decks and we'll turn up on day one and be like, oh, you've also put that card in your deck. Oh, I'll have to take it out of mine because I can't have pieces of Esther because you have it. But it's also possible to get together and work it through and be like, okay, well, I'm going to build a deck that emphasizes this specific mechanism. And so we can all lean into that and benefit from each other and have that kind of synergy across our decks 
And the game is strong enough to handle all ends of that spectrum. Because you and I have played a couple of games of this together and zero communication and planning about what decks we're building and yet still we're winning games and doing well. And I play with another group where three of the four players are min-maxes and the game still works. And I think it's just, it's really interesting. You've um, been teaching your daughter this recently, right? Yeah, I can't remember if I mentioned it or not. But yeah, we, we have. Yeah, we just finished the first three scenario campaign with her. That's all we've done. We did it with the pre-built decks and they're rock solid. So if anyone wants to play, mm. you know, by, by the, this pre-made investigators, you're not missing out on anything at all by buying one of those packs because there are options within there to, to build your deck and there are, you know, there's a couple of different ways you can go with them. There's plenty of plays in there and the base game. And Rachel and I, I have just built our decks. We built decks actually to do the first cycle. There's the proper, is it Dunwich? The first one? I think it is Dunwich. Yeah, that's going to be with Ellie. And then we bought another set of decks. And just building the decks is so much fun. Because you start to think how this could work, how this could go together, and and oh, so I played the boxer sort of preset one, Nathaniel Cho, and just from that, you're firing off possibilities, and you're like, oh, do you know what? I've done it with this preset. Now I want to get in and and use some of the more of the guardian cards to build with this because I couldn't think they will go together, and it just you know that deck building addiction in me where I just get out a thousand cards and start <laughs> building, hence Marvel Snap and all the rest of it, and I just start thinking about all these things that might work and. You know, at least 40% of the time they don't work at all. And that's fine. I enjoy that as much as the other times they do work a bit. And the odd time, one in a million, I get a really good deck going. I'm like, wow, this is... <laughs> but I never want to do it based on mass. I always like to do it based on the story and then with some effectiveness. And it's sort of very obvious stuff. What is kind of interesting to me is the fact that it is such a heavily storied and the mechanisms are so tied into the story game and yet it's grabbed you. Is, uh, it just you just surprise me all the time. I don't care about you. I don't care about theme, and yet you play the most thematic games. True, but they're they're thematic games where it's not just the theme carrying it. The decisions you're making along the way are meaningful and valid and important. Like and yet this game, like you say, has the real potential to do interesting things. Um, I was talking to a gaming group. I played Arkham on Tuesday actually, and we were talking about it. And it's the only game or the only card game I can think of that has legitimate jump scares in it. Like, there are times you will turn a card and a thing has happened, trying not to spoiler it, that you had no idea was even a thing that was possible. And so you flip this card over and everyone's like, what just happened? <laughs> and it's changed everyone's understanding of what's happening on the board. It's amazing. And that's really interesting. It is, it is genuinely amazing. It's an absolutely incredible game. Okay. And that introductory scenario is not perfect. No. But it's very good and does a very good job of teaching the game and introducing you to a kind of wider world where you as characters are very probably out of your depth. And I think it does a good job of demonstrating that, right? Like, you are not superheroes running around beating up minions. Oh, you no. are regular people dealing with a, a much bigger <laughs> issue than that. And sometimes you have to run <laughs> because you're not there to see everything through to the very end. And it's, it, yeah. the thing that's sprung to mind playing that again was I talked about the solo game Resist recently where you're part of, sort of the Spanish resistance to Franco and the sort of shock of starting to play this solo game and you are not there to win. You are there to spawn it out and do slight victories and nibble a bit here and nibble a bit there while your group gets worn down and trying to get as much as you can done to try and inspire the sort of the next people to pick up the banner. And it's a complete shock and change to what you're doing. But it, it does add, I think, 
some sort of subtlety, which is difficult to achieve, but amazing when you do it, off games that I don't have to be superpowered. I want to be superpowered in the superhero games. That's why I own them and love them. Yeah. But I, I want a bit more of a grey area in these other games. I don't have to feel like I've got, you know, uh, an Uzi 9mm that will shoot everything in the room. That's not that yeah. interesting all the time. Absolutely. You want to be faced with a problem where like, okay, wait, now I have severe limitations here. What are we going to do? Indeed. Right. I'm going to move on. We've got three left. And the next one, I'm going to try and set you up for the one after that. You enjoy this. Hanabi. <laughs> it's like you've thought about this. Yeah, almost. Hanabi is quite simply the best cooperative game that has ever existed. It might be one of the best games that has ever existed. <laughs> Would you like to know more? <laughs> Is that it? Uh, Antoine Bowser. <laughs> Antoine Bowser. Mathematical, cooperative card game, very loosely themed. Okay, can I just clarify here? You said mathematical. Is that because you need to be able to order the numbers one to five? Correct. Okay. <laughs> we, have, we have a different benchmark for what we consider well, mathematical. Well, it's, it's um, number-based, and it's probability-based more than that. Sure. I don't think it is, but okay. Um, so you don't you think it's are, as a it is a bit. It, I don't think it's probability. I think if you're going on probability, you're probably playing badly. Spoiler alert, we might get to that. You are playing <laughs> cards as a group to try and put cards into the uh, centre, playing them from, sorry, cards existing, five different colours, numbered one to five. You are holding your cards back to front so everyone else can see what your cards are, but you cannot, but you can see everybody else's cards. And the whole game is about trust and communication and sharing information with each other about what cards people are holding using a very finite amount of resources in order to be able to pass that information and then playing those cards correctly to the table. Uh, Ronan, how do you get on with Hanabi? I get on fine with the game. <laughs> that feels like there's something that's being unsaid. No, I don't know what you mean. No. Um, <laughs> I think it's an interesting exercise. I can't say that I love the experience of playing it because it does feel like walking a tightrope all the time. And it does feel like I'm having to concentrate quite hard. I don't have the ability to express myself. I have to actually concentrate and be a good boy and do what's best for everyone. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The game is intentionally vague on rules and processes and kind of the way people should play it. And so every group kind of finds their own way to play it. And the way I play it is that it's incredibly strict interpretation of the rules and... Poker faces are very important. The way you give information has to be very kind of almost clinical, like it shouldn't be in a leading way. That means that, yeah, people who are expressive will have to contain that. And I think that is sometimes something you struggle with. In, no, no, in fairness, in fairness, I completely agree with your way of playing it. The reason sometimes we get more into discussions in the middle of the game is because you and I play it completely differently. And even when we yes. get to a point where and I don't mean in terms of the cheating and the nodding and the winking. I mean in terms of thought processes and what we would prioritise around the table. If we were sitting in the, doing the same move as each other at the same time, we would 90% of the time choose a different clue to give or didn't think to play. <laughs> Quite possibly. And so it is a game that benefits from a group playing together because you sort of will learn to develop a bit of trust in each other, ideally. And so if somebody gives you a clue and it doesn't necessarily make sense to you, you should be able to at least infer why they're giving you that clue and that should lead you to additional information or perhaps the clue has been given to you that perhaps is revealing information to other people. It's very hard to explain without cards in front of you. But if I know something about my cards and then you give information to Rachel about hers that doesn't make sense to her, it might give me information about the cards I'm holding because why else would you give that clue to Rachel? And so for such a simple, mechanically simple game and for such a quick game, a game takes 
easily 20 minutes. The amount of concentration and thought that is required is probably more than any other game outside of playing like speed chess or go or something. Yeah, I'm I'm willing to go along with it. I'm willing to go along <laughs> yeah, I feel like not everyone is willing to put that level of thought into it. <laughs> and I think if you do, if you find a group that does, it is exceptional. And I think if you go back to, I mean, most people listening to this have been playing games for years, right? The point where you sit down with somebody who's new and you teach them a game for the first time that they've ever played a modern game and you see that light bulb go on in them and you see that moment where they're like, oh, I didn't know any of this kind of thing existed. Hanabi, for me, delivers that so reliably. And it's such a satisfying experience to see people realizing, A, that like something like this exists, and B, kind of having a moment where you see a clue get given that means that a player has developed an understanding of the game, and then somebody else around the table goes, oh, wait, that means this, this, this about my cards. And I wasn't involved in that clue at all. And those moments are absolutely beautiful. And they're kind of... <laughs> the weirdest thing about Hanabi is that you almost can't comment on them at the time because that is giving information. But I feel like you don't necessarily get that experience from it. Is that right? I get part of it, but it's, it's weighed by a bit of frustration and a bit of... It's a bit too dry. It, of, of, to sit there for 20 minutes, not really communicating, not really... I know you are sharing the experience, but my sharing of experience is generally a bit more loud and tactile than your sharing of an experience. <laughs> True. So I would love then to be able to sort of finish it and then talk back through all the clues where, but it's too hard because the game still oh, changes absolutely. all the time. So you haven't got that debrief and stuff. Do you remember, I can't remember when the period was, but it feels like it was some point in the 90s where like cable TV exploded and there were just random channels of everything and they were like poker channels. Yeah. And they would have like cards on the table on like a glass table so they had a camera oh, yeah, so you yeah, could yeah, look yeah, at yeah, people's yeah. cards going, yeah. I feel like a version of that with Hanabi would be incredible <laughs> where you can just record everything and everyone's cards at the end just like have a 40 minute discussion about it all I'll tell you uh, what because that's the kind of game it is there's a global audience of 312 people who would friggin adore that channel <laughs> right. I'm, I'm gonna... I feel like I've gone down that path before <laughs> I'm going to pull you onwards here because time is ticking by unfortunately Antoine Bowser Kind of vaguely number-based mathematical cooperative game <laughs> from 2014 to so four years after Hanabi came out. We've been talking about theme all day. Seven Samurai, one of the greats of world cinema, whichever version of The Magnificent Seven you like, the original one, the Chris Pratt one, the three amigos possibly did it better than anyone. And he took that theme and created a card-based, number-based co-op around it, and it's called Samurai Spirit, in which each of the players is a samurai. There's a village at peril from raiders, and we are going to be drawing cards and dealing with them in a couple of different ways or using our special powers over several rounds in order to stop the village from getting burned. I probably bought Samurai Spirit in 2014. It's probably taken me nine years to play it. It takes up to seven people, which is one of the selling points of it. I'm not convinced that seven will be the best, but we've played it twice with six. And I thought from everything that I gleaned and from reading the rule book that it would be a shared kind of puzzle that, not similar to Nubby, Nubby is unique in what it does, but in which we have got a shared situation and a shared problem that we all have to work out. If we do that, you can ignore that and cancel that and put that that way. Then I can take that too and then we'll move that across and that can raid on your family. And between that, we're working out the best way to deal with these cards. I'm going to start there 
And I know you said you've got nothing to say about this game, but have I been able to squeeze a few words out of you about Samurai Spirit? Yeah, so I'm sort of predetermined to like this, right? It's designed by Anton Bowser, who designed an RP, which is my favourite game. It is cooperative, so again, in that same theme. I like the theme. Uh, I've played quite a few Seven Samurai-inspired games over the years. Um, none of them has ever quite landed for me, but always interested to try another one. And the fact that it has Bowser's name on it makes me more intrigued to try it. Roland, so you've played this a couple of times, right? But we've played it twice. What was the character you played in the last game? I could fight twice, which is a character that I've played twice and never found a useful. Yeah, what was his name? <laughs> Fighty Twicey Man. Because <laughs> I would say he's the red guy. Yep. <laughs> and so for me, like this is selling itself absolutely on theme, right? Putting mechanisms aside for a second, it is selling itself on you are playing Seven Samurai. And I don't know who any of the characters are. They're not obviously the original characters from Seven Samurai. They are some characters they've created. And they're all instantly forgettable. And that's kind of a problem, right? The only thing I think that can make them memorable within this sort of thing is having interesting powers and having interesting things you can do which can turn the game. And then you'd be like, oh, yeah, remember the time you used that power to do that? You know, I remember that you are the tinker in Gloomhaven. All right, we played it more. But because of the things you do within the game, and that reminds me, oh, yeah, you can yeah. do that. You've got loads of cards, you support, you heal, you can push and pull, whatever it might be. In Samurai Spirit, it was designed to the point, and basically what everyone's got to do is they draw a card, mostly on their turn, and it's a radar, which goes down one side or the other. If they take too much damage, they're out of the round. And there's a deck of cards, and you've got to get all the way through the deck of cards, and some of them will continually, for various reasons, be put into the, the actual radar pile. And then those that are in the radar pile at the end of the round will attack the village, and there are barricades. Once the barricades go, the homes start getting burnt, and the families can get killed. And if you let the homes and families all get killed, you've lost the game. It's... it's that's all you need to know about the game. And they come in different levels of power. So if I've got 12 hit points and I draw two sixes, I'm dead if, if I haven't found another way of dealing with them. The other thing you can do is instead of drawing a card, you can give your power to someone else. The thing is, those powers are so dull. Yeah, like I was trying to remember what the power was in the last character I played. We played it a week ago. I can't remember what my power was. I remember some of the powers, but I don't remember what the character of the power I did was and that's that's a problem right well a lot of them are situational as well but the problem is you don't know what the situation is that's coming up because it's a, a random draw from a deck yes so whenever we have cooperated and, and i think you do have to cooperate all you're doing is really working on probabilities i might have messed around yes. with probabilities in an arby but you're saying look if we give this to rachel she can then deal with a three or a five that comes out her own power lets her deal with a two so she might get a one or a four or if six as you get deeper into it oh she does we're in trouble and you're doing a lot of work and it's sort of something that I call when I go to work and people are just doing nothing. It's busy work. It's work to look busy. It's like, yeah, we'll do this, we'll do that, move that around, blah, blah, blah. how much control have we gained? Another 3% on this next card draw. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that's what got, what got it for me is that you do have to work. If you, it's very easy to play badly in Samurai Spirit. Yeah. It's very easy to just, you can be dead on the first run through of the three rounds. No doubt about it. If you haven't put thought into it, what you're doing, but playing well sometimes doesn't work out and works out so slowly that there's no or very rare are there moments to celebrate which you need in a co-op you know if the train is falling apart and and you're in the last carriage lloyd and we think of a clever way of dragging you out of it and let that carriage go we've got a moment that we can enjoy we can celebrate what will we celebrate in the samurai spirit other than the luck of a draw yeah absolutely i think it's 
fundamentally probably quite an, an interesting game, but it's not interesting enough to justify the amount of planning and discussion it needs to try and plan ahead. Because, like you say, you are ever, only ever managing probability. You're not directly fixing problems. It's a bit disappointing. <laughs> and I think I'll just last thing about it to something you've talked about through this of density of decisions. The thing is, there's a high density of decisions in here, but they're not of consequence. And there's not enough time that your decisions make a difference for it to support the density of decisions. And that's sort of another interesting factor that sometimes comes into it of, yeah, it's a good theme. Yes, you're making me do lots of decisions, but actually decisions don't mean enough for me to be fully... And I'd say actually even a lot of those decisions feel automatic. If I draw something that has, you know, five health and a hat symbol, I'm definitely putting it on the hat symbol. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And it feels like it got close for me. But it just hasn't sparked at all, and it's not one that I'm going to keep around, which is disappointing because, no, like, yeah, in theory, it was going to be great. Okay, we're going to finish off. If we're going to talk about themes that have been done to death, would it be in, well, <laughs> books, obviously, uh, TV, film, gaming? You pulled out a Sherlock Holmes games on me, Lloyd. It's Watson and Holmes. It is based on there's a case, and we are probably Baker Street Irregulars. I believe so. Uh, I'm not strong on these. <laughs> and there is a series of locations in a grid, and players all get to visit a different location each. And this isn't a co-op. This is a race to put together the clues that you find at the location. So you read a paragraph. It tells you something about the whole situation. And then you need to use the information you've got and think about where you want to go next Bid these carriage tokens against each other to, if you're both or more than one of you is trying to get to one particular location to be the person who gets there quickest and then piece together the story in order to be able to solve the mystery. Now, that's going to make it sound very generic to other detective games and yet you pulled it out with great excitement, Lloyd. Prior to this, I had only done the demo many, many years ago, a very simple sort of read two or three places and you're done. What made you enthusiastic to bring this to the table? It sort of got lost in my collection a little bit. I played it a lot when it came out, by which I mean I think six or seven times. And it got to the table pretty regularly and I'd really enjoyed it and I think everyone else also had really enjoyed it. And then whatever happened, I mean, I think we've addressed the fact that I own too many games, you own too many games, that might be a problem that we're not ready to fix yet. And it kind of got forgotten about. And so I hadn't played it for at least five years and so i sort of almost rediscovered it in my collection recently and sort of remembered the times i'd had with it and how much fun it had been and so I put it on the table and i've been on the table twice recently and it still delivers just a really interesting experience you are as you say running around trying to gather information it's quite for me at least quite kind of like note heavy like i'm taking a lot of notes as i'm playing and trying to draw conclusions and deduce things whilst also because of its competitive element you are trying to both race against other people and deny them the opportunity to look at information that you want to look at or have looked at. There are just enough mechanisms to make it a game rather than an activity. And yet the cases are hard enough that A, it's possible to fail, and B, you have to actually do some amount of detective work to get to an answer. I will say also, in its, in its favour, it's about a quarter of the length of Sherlock Holmes consultant detective for each case. Oh, easily, yeah. And has about maybe 3% of the reading. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's not hugely text-heavy, and yet I take a huge amount of notes. 
I think I've also never won a game of it, which probably helps keep it interesting because I'm doing something or some combination of things wrong. And so kind of keep returning to it gives me an opportunity to carry on exploring that. But the cases are well written. The game is solid. Um, I think a second edition is due out. Is it this year? Yeah, 2023. Or has it already come out? Yeah, 2023 is due out. Yeah. You were talking about the Hanabi moment of the revelation of a new gamer. And the, I've only, this is case one or whatever it was that we did. This, this is the only time I've played it. And I was starting to build something up. But as in many of these games, I was like, yeah, but now I need to go here and here and here. And I probably had about five more locations that I was thinking I need to get to to double check everything. And then two of the players went, I'm going to make a guess. Now, one of them had them wildly wrong. Okay. And the other one had it exactly right. And before they sort of said what was right, they were like, I said, if you're going to make a guess now, what would it be? And it turns out I was 90% right in my guess. Yeah. And that was a revelation moment for me. And I was like, well, when I was forced to guess here, like, you know, by not forced to, but I decided to, I actually had all the pieces and the game was relying on me to pull them together. And there were yes. diff- several sources for each piece of information that you might have wanted to to get. It, it wasn't you go there, you find the fingerprints. That's not going to happen. It's going to be, here's a suggestion, here's a suggestion. Are you able or willing to make the deductive leap to say, ah, okay, I see that piece of information, I see yeah, that piece absolutely. of information, the bit in the middle is down to me. Yes, and I think it's, I mean, very slightly spoilerific, but I think there's just enough red herrings there as well. That is a balancing act, right? It's not like, well, I've looked at three locations and found three things, so I'm just going to go with it. There is enough stuff out there that is wrong or misleading that if that's the only thing you look at and you draw all of your conclusions based on that, you will be wrong. And so it pays to verify some things. Yeah, and you have to be very smart of where you're choosing where to go because you have the names oh, of that might be where I'm going wrong. <laughs> you have the names of the locations. And again, it's not going to lead you by the nose. It's not going to say... oh. Very rarely to say this person is there. It's Absolutely. a case of hold on. So that happened and that happened. So it might be a case of uh, I don't know. There was singing in the background, and then the opera house is one of the locations. And you're like, you've got to put it together amongst this thing that. So there was view. There was a view from the opera house window to what I actually need to have seen. So going to the house, they've, you already know that none of them saw it. But if, if I go to the opera house, yeah. the opera singer might have seen it out the window. And, oh, there's yeah. the thing I was waiting for. And, all right, that's a kind of a blunt example, but I was trying to make up on the fly. But on the flip side, there are also locations that are there for no reason at all. And so if you're just taking a pot shot and being like, well, there's a post office. I'll go to the post office and maybe I'll find something out. And you flip the card over and it's like, this is a post office. We're unsure why you came. <laughs> And so Price you're punished for doing stupid things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? And so then, but so as a player, A, you get feedback that you're making stupid decisions and you're being punished for it. And B, you then have to pretend to read that for a long time, take copious notes, which you've been doing at every other location. Otherwise, everyone else is looking at you being like, well, there's no need to go there. They looked at it for three seconds and put the car back down and look miserable. Hmm. So that post sort of meta game on top of the like <laughs> no reason, of how much information like, yeah. is everyone else getting from these information <laughs> or how much information is everyone getting from these locations is also a valid thing to draw information and deduce from. Yeah, agreed. I just wish I was better. <laughs> I'm already playing on level one out of three in difficulty, right? Three out of three, I one know. of shambles. <laughs> <laughs> right, we have to draw this to a close. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing your thoughts with me. No worries. Thank you for forgetting how bad I was last time and inviting me back. That's all right. I've drunk heavily throughout the whole thing and I'll probably forget next time I ask you as well. <laughs> no doubt. 
Thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Game Pit this time. We're proud members of the Dice Tower Network. If you want to get hold of us, follow us on Twitter. <laughs> you can get hold of us at the Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. We'll catch you next time on the Game Pit. Music by E. Aaron. Lloydie Ball.